pops on the blues lights. Uh, I just wanted to speak to Julie for a moment. Hello, Julie. Hello, Tyra. <laughs> um, is it? Can people hear me? Is 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 that projecting okay? Okay, great. Um, so. Julie has had an incredibly interesting background, head of, I think, design research at um, Intel, is it? Has worked on some amazing uh, background projects with other companies and other agencies in the past. But I say this with true sincerity, that this is the most exciting project that you've ever worked on. And people approach Newbreed all the time and say, we're doing something different. But when you find something like what you're doing, it's definitely worth creating a platform for. So please, um, Tell us a little bit more about how you describe this project because it's it's hard to define, isn't it? Right, so it's worth hearing about that. I, I think I have to describe a little bit about the origin of the project for it to make sense. So, as Carla mentioned, the Generation Poetry Project is essentially three people: so myself, Massa Tedeschi, Jeff Tut. Um, we were going to project all of our Twitter handles and everything, but um, you'll have to track us down through yeah, the hashtag is Generation Poetry. Thanks for that. Um, and we are researchers and strategists and um, technologists and artists, educators. And in recent years, our work has led us to do more and more research with younger people. And as the people that we were working with got younger and younger and younger, we got more and more confused. It was sometimes it was like we would be in a conversation and it was like they were going in and out of focus <laughs> on us. And in the way that we research and the way that we, we do our work, when we get confused, that means that's something we have to pay attention to. So confusion breeds curiosity. And in this case, it was very intense curiosity because the types of ways that we've made, made sense of people for 10, 20, 30 years weren't working, which is both very frightening and very exciting at the same time. So we self-funded global research. So essentially, whenever we were going out for clients into a part of the world, we recruited our own participants so that we could start understanding what was going on with the younger generations. And uh, as we got deeper into the research and the analysis, the belief, the hypothesis, the framework that started to make everything become clear was this idea that a new language was emerging. And when language changes, when it evolves, there are kind of two ways it can change. You can change language by adding content. So that's adding more words and more vocabulary and more ideas and more concepts. And um, teenagers are really good at creating content, right? They create slang and in-speak and out-speak and new, you know, new content all at the time. And in fact, actually, the whole idea of a teenager was created through language. It was a concept that we needed, and so we created the word for it. And then all of a sudden, teenagers existed. So these teenagers are creating new content. But what was really interesting and exciting was the fact that they're also creating a new structure of language. This new language is a new structure. That means it's a new syntax, um, a new uh, set of rules, a new form um, is, is coming into play. Uh, and because language and the structure of language shapes our reality, if a new language is emerging with a new structure, it creates a new reality, a new way of making sense of the world. So when we figured that out, we had to take a deep breath um, and a long pause and go, oh, okay, this is bigger than a few trends. 
what are we going to, because this, this, what are these implications, right? What, 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 what should we do? Um, so we decided that this was a project and we called it the Generation Poetry Project. And we also call it a school for and about communication in our times. And we use the word generation because essentially this cohort, this group of children born in the year 2000 and later, um, are the first cohort who are native speakers of this language. Uh, we call it poetry because this new language that they're forming doesn't follow the same rules of narrative and storytelling that we all work in and that we kind of assume is the natural way to talk to people about stuff and to convince people of stuff. I mean, how many of us in the branding world, you know, uh, use storytelling story paradigms is the ultimate way to structure, um, you know, a campaign or a, a, a piece of, of, of communication. Um, it's a project because this is just starting. It's just emerging. It's not finished, right? These kids have not had any time to reflect on what's what they're doing or what's happening or to codify this language and we older people and we are all like none of us are generation poetry so you know when i say we are old people um it's it's not we haven't had any time to even notice that it's happening much less learn to speak it or understand what they're saying um and so um it, it is very much that's why we need a school because a school is a place for us to learn and to research and to study what's going on. It's a place for us to all learn about it and um, you know, share what we're, what we're learning about it. It's a place to make and explore um, through those findings and, um, and, and really kind of come together across generations um, in order to, to explore this new language that, that, that's emerging. Um, fascinating. Obviously, and uh, I know when you've been around people before, they've they've found it equally fascinating. I had a Sunday lunch with some friends recently, and we started talking about how um, some of our friends, teenagers, were locking themselves in a room. You know, the current, current narrative is they're all playing Fortnite, they're not going out and drinking anymore, they just watch Netflix, and the conversation turned into. Well, you know, they don't want to go out because they can see everything on social media now. Social media is ruined it for everyone. So you kind of pick up these conversations quite a lot where people feel like, oh, we know what's happening here. And someone said something in that in that dinner party that felt really pertinent, and then it drove a conversation between us where um, they said, well, you know what? Generations have always gone through changes. So we've had like the war, and then the, you know post-war generations, young young people and then we had the 60s this is no different and I tried to argue with them and say well you know a good friend of mine Julie thinks it is and I called you up and said I didn't have the thing that I wanted to say I couldn't back up what I was saying and so I said to you is it really different and I felt like that was an interesting question to ask you right now it is an interesting question and it's probably the number one question that we get asked is sort of why you know, are you, aren't you either, aren't you just seeing something generalized across all of culture, or aren't you just seeing what teenagers do, and this is just business as usual? And I think what I hear in that question is, why are you making a big deal of this? Like, why, why, why are these kids special? Why, why are you, why are you, you elevating this? And and, and making, you know, not making anybody pay attention to it, they can choose to if they want to, but 
And I think the answer is, is pretty straightforward, but we're not claiming that these kids are intrinsically different from any generation of teenagers that happened before. It's not like they were born with an extra thumb for texting or that they've evolved some innate knowledge that when they're born, they immediately know how to become social media influencers, right? They, you know, this isn't an active sort of um, a changed body and, and mind of, of a teenager. They just happen to be teenagers now, right? And now is not like any other now. Um, it's, they're not in an unprecedented situation, but it doesn't happen every generation. Uh, probably the best example to be think about what's the first generation who was born after the invention of the printing press. It, they didn't invent the printing press, but they were born once it existed. And they're at, you know, generation poetry is at kind of the apex or at the tip of a very long arc of social and technological change. They're not the start of it, they're not the end of it, but they happen to be the edge that's becoming visible on this interconnected art. And where they have found themselves, this now that they have found themselves in, they don't have the systems that enable them to survive and thrive in the way that they need to. So they are creating this new language, or even creating as an overstatement, they're responding to their environment and communicating in a way that works in the environment they've been born into. And um, essentially, the old stories aren't working for them. So they've had to create a new system, a new, a new form of creation. Uh, again, I shouldn't say the word create. It's easy to say the word create. But you know, this, this place that they found themselves in has shaped the way they communicate with each other. So when you say stories, are you talking about politics, parenting. I'm talking about all of the stories that we tell ourselves yeah. from, yeah, like what makes it, you know, what a good life looks like, how it unfolds, what the future is going to be like, how how we have power and make change in the world, all of those stories. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we'd say we're not in a new era yet, but a new era is emerging. And once this era kind of unfolds, we are all going to have to speak you know, or have some level of fluency with this new communication system, with this new language that's emerging. But they will be native speakers, and we will not. And um, if you have a second language, um, you know how lost and disoriented and confused and at a disadvantage you can feel when you are at a disadvantage. You know, you don't have the same fluency as everybody around you. and thing, you know, we are anticipate that there is the potential, in fact, we see it happening for immense communication breakdown. Um, and this means that there's the potential, you know, what, what might we lose in translation um, between the generations at a time when we're facing quite significant existential threat to everybody? Um, if, if we are losing a lot in translation, what are we, what, what is at risk of losing? But also because new language creates new possibilities. If we can't understand, if we're not listening to what they're saying, what possibilities, what might we not find um, in this communication breakdown? So that's why we're making a big deal of it because we think there's a lot at stake and um, that, um, you know, 
that requires a certain degree of urgency, but also a certain degree of um, humility because um, we are used to being in charge and the ones who are the most fluent and that's not necessarily the case. Which kind of takes us back to the question for tonight, which I do think is a great question. Um, when we were talking about this event and saying, you know, what's the best way to essentially launch, you know, Generation Poetry Project? What's the best question to ask first? And we started to talk about questions that Generation Poetry kind of have a response to, which is, do brands have the right to solve the problems that matter, which they have a really strong point of view on. Um, and which is why we curated the people for tonight who also um, have a strong point of view on that. But one of the, the kind of common feedback comments was, shouldn't it be, do brands have the responsibility to solve the problems that matter rather than the right? So how are we gonna be talking about the right specifically tonight when we're interviewing these panelists? I think the, the, the right, well, let me, let me back, back into that a little bit from where I ended, which is sort of saying we particularly, like people in branding and advertising and marketing and design are supposed to be masters of language, right? It's our job to be better at communication than everybody else and to figure out what people want to talk about and to really amplify that content at scale which means that we are the people who are going to run into this communication breakdown first. And I think maybe some of you are already starting to feel it and sense it in your work, things that maybe aren't quite cutting through or making sense the way that you thought. I don't know, we, we, might, we might be the first ones who are experiencing this, but the hints we're getting back is that um, it's, you know, it's starting to emerge. Um, and um, because of this switch of power, because of this switch of agency, we risk simply becoming irrelevant to this generation. And you'll note a complete and conspicuous absence in this room, right? Generation poetry is not here tonight. And that's not because we didn't ask them or invite them. It's because they have more important things to do and more interesting, like, we're just not that interesting to them. Right, and um, so there's a, a real risk of simply ceasing to be many relevance in, in, in that sense. So I think if, if if you know when you talk about the right to exist, it's like do they even want to engage with you, and do they accept the terms on which the engagement happens, um, or do they believe that um, actually the system the set of assumptions, the reality that we're propagating has no legitimacy. So I think it's a question of, you know, you know, do you have a legitimate right to exist in the world? And one of the things they're saying to us quite clearly is that, you know, all of this shit that you're doing, all of this making and talking, you know, and communicating and, and, and branding and consuming, that has a cost, right? It has a price. And we are, you know, Generation Poetry, are definitely gonna have to pay that price, possibly with our lives and certainly with our way of life. And certainly with our way of life not playing out the way that yours played out. And you guys are to blame, right? You know, the point of your finger is saying, you know, you've messed this up for us and it's your fault. And, you know, 
we're here. All of us do this work that we do. Yes, because we need to earn a living, but also we've all justified to ourselves that this is meaningful work, right? We're, we're creating meaningful content for people. We're helping them find value and purpose in their lives. And that the ends justify the means of maybe some of the grubby aspects of the systems that we're involved in. And um, we're not sure that that answer is going to play out in the future, that, that this generation will continue to say the ends justify the means. And when that happens, like, what, what do, you know, what right do we have to exist? What right do we have to do the work that we do? What right do these brands, products, even the products, have to exist in the world going, going, going forward? So do we have answers to this question? I say no, but I think this is a time for us to reflect. So it's not about going to Generation Poetry and say, okay, yeah, we've messed up. Tell us what to do, how to fix it. It's sort of saying, okay, we need to stop. We need to take a moment to reflect take some responsibility for our own actions and involvement in the systems that we are, and ask ourselves these questions. Do we have the right to do what we do? Do we have the right to exist? Um, and um, depending on those answers that we formulate for ourselves, what, you know, what, what do we do about it? Well, that's why it's a school, right? That's why people yeah. are funding your research and participating in that because they see it as a collaborative project that benefits us all and it's not you saying, we're an agency that's got the answer. You're just kicking off something with some amazing insights, and um, that's fantastic. So just um, uh, a little bit about tonight's format. Um, we're going to have some of our panelists to come up and speak with Julie, two at a time. And then afterwards, I hope you'll stay around and connect with each other, because we, we love those stories that come back and say, I was chatting to this person and they were com from a completely different area and we, we found out that we could do this together and there are some really diverse um, backgrounds and jobs here. So please stick around afterwards. So I'd like to introduce first up to the stage Shane Mears and Nafisa Bakar. spoken um, over the telephone and we, we've had some free conversations but I'd really just like to start by having each of you just introduce yourselves um, tell people kind of a little bit about who you are what you do but also why you wanted to be here tonight why did you agree to be on this panel or what did you think was interesting about the question that we're asking hi everybody um, thank you for having me um, so my name's uh, Shani, well, my name's Shanice, but everyone calls me Shani, so Shani. Shani Mears. I'm originally from Birmingham, and I moved to London about three and a half years ago. Um, I studied dance from, I was about eight, to be honest, and then studied at university, and then I realised when I was at uni that I was in the arts, and I love the arts, but there was just a competitive vibe that I just wasn't really a fan of. But I really still wanted to work in the creative industry and contribute to sort of some sort of form of, I don't know, creativity. And then I sort of discovered um, marketing, advertising, and I moved to London on an internship, um, which was around marketing and advertising. And again, 
not really having a clue about what that was about, but there was a big conversation about diversity and inclusion, and getting younger people into the industry, how to engage with them, how to retain talent, and that sort of became a theme. So there was a program that I applied for, which was all about that. Um, and it was about engaging people who were from different creative industries, but not necessarily from the advertising agency, um, advertising industry. Um, so there's 10 of us, and then there was also, that was through an agency called Liberty. And then there was 10 of us, um, and then I went to a big agency called Iris Worldwide. Um, and whilst I was at Iris, it was kind of like finding my feet, I suppose, in the, in the actual industry itself. So um, I was in planning for a bit because I thought, oh yeah, I'm strategic. I love people. Like, this, is, this is what I'm about. And then actually, no, that, that wasn't me. Um, and then they had a culture department, which was about PR and experiential stuff and events. And I did my own events. I was like, yeah, this is me. And I was like, no, yeah, that's not me. And then I went into accounts. I was like, maybe this is me. I was like, no, this is not me. And then I was in creative and I was like, I was like, what is me? Like, I was so confused because I, I enjoyed everything that I was doing there, but I enjoyed everything that was the problem. And I wanted to start, sort of have my hands on a little bit of everything and in those spaces, especially when they've been gone for so long, it's like, no, you're a copywriter. So this is your department and this is what you do. It's not about the sort of PR stuff that's happening over here. And because I was doing quite a bit outside of, um, outside of work I kind of just felt like well that's not fair like there's this whole wider creative industry that's out there of young people that I know are doing so many different things they're so multifaceted and they're putting on their events and then they're DJs and then they're writing their blogs and they can do that but I want to work and I want to learn so why like why can't I do that anyway I was actually quite supportive of the idea of that but then as it came to the end of my internship um I sort of realised actually, no, maybe this is not the space for me and um, maybe I just need to go to somewhere else. But whilst I was at, whilst, whilst I was there, I developed a really great rapport with the CEO who was um, Dan Saxby at the time. And he was kind of just like, well, you don't want to stay. And kind of like you were saying, it's like as marketing advertising, you're supposed to know what people want and engage audiences and stuff like that. And um, particularly retain young talent in order to sort of obviously grow in the business. and. Yeah, they just couldn't retain me. So, <laughs> so he um, he offered to leave with me. Um, instead, he was just like, you know what? Why don't we just leave together? And I was like, are you sure? You're the CEO. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what I'm doing. So, um, but he was just like, yeah. He's like, well, well, that that's the journey, isn't it? Like, let's let's do it. So um, so that that's sort of how we came with with the elephant room, and the elephant room is all about. We call it um, a creative company that operates in the advertising agency, but we're not limited to. So we've like we've worked with like uh, Universal, we shot music videos, and um, a lot of our stuff is based around audiences and research and insight and um, qualitative research and understanding people um, and making sure that at the heart of what we do, everything is representative from the inside out. Um, so I'm head of talent there. And I look at the partnerships to be like universities, DNAD, um, I sit on the board for, for the advisory board for the new blood shift program that they do. Um, I also build out a lot of like the wider creative industry partners, so like the filmmakers, the stylists, the makeup artists, the producers, the UX people, everyone that we want to engage with that don't necessarily want to have a nine to five but want to collaborate or work on cool projects. That's sort of my um, responsibility to build out that black book. So when we do have projects, um, we know who to call. Um, I also build out uh, the sort of talent program, so how we engage interns and work experience and shadow days and things like that. 
um, and then like how we develop our events, so we do events, and like we partner with like people like Red Bull or Twitter, and it's all about inspiring, entertaining, or equipping people who want to access the industry, or just people, and everything is about access for me, so it's like how do we enable access for people, whether that be um, organisations, uh, places, contacts, industry, knowledge, um, that's a big part of my role, um, and I suppose being here tonight was kind of just it was just a really interesting conversation. I think me, me and Carla um, corresponded a bit on LinkedIn and I know that we follow each other and she's always like, um, I'm looking at what she's doing, I'm looking at what um, I'm looking at what she's doing, she's looking at what I'm doing. And I'm like, actually, this is kind of a cool conversation to be a part of considering, like, I suppose I'm a part of the generation coming up and um, understanding, like, what is that, like, not knowing before I moved to London what, what, sort of the generations where there was, I didn't know there was such thing as Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z. I didn't know that they were doing that to us and separating. <laughs> you know what I mean? Studying us and all these behaviours and attitudes and demographics. I didn't, I didn't really know what that was, to be honest. And then I realised as I got into the industry, I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, there is, there is, there is a structure and there is a way of working and there's an institution of how people do things and there are certain people that don't exist in certain spaces and there are people that do go underrepresented and there are things that need to be changed so i feel like brands right now i mean i sit on the racist party already at number 10 and then i'm the youngest in the room all the time and everyone looks at me like you know i'm like i don't but it's, it's like people assume that because i'm part of this new gen <laughs> i've got all this knowledge and it's definitely not the case but what's nice is that um, people want to learn about what is happening and um, whether that be through politics or through creativity everything is sort of becoming some sort of collaboration i think that brands do play a big part of that um so yeah that's kind of me Uh, my name is Nafisa Bakar and I'm one of the co-founders of Amalia and Amalia, I sound a bit croaky because I do have whatever is going on out there. Um, so Amalia has been going for four years and we are a media platform that seeks to amplify the voices of Muslim women and we do that through podcasts, events, videos and brand partnerships as well. Um, along the way we also started our own insight agency and that was essentially from a space where brands were knocking on our doors and saying look how do we talk to your audience how do we understand your audience so we've worked with brands like pinterest lush advertising agencies as well marks and spencers amazon consumer brands um and earlier this year in february we also acquired another company called halal gems and that's all about around discovering halal food um, and we run a food festival which is one of london's biggest food festivals we take over hospitals market fill it with events our own traders and program a series of events over three days so this year we saw ninety thousand people um, and the idea is through all of our work to create inclusive moments and experiences centered around muslim audiences and muslim communities that are also things like the food festival are open to everyone um, and in terms of why we do that and what, what we hear is in particular in media um, for a long time our communities have either been ignored or misrepresented um, and it still happens so Muslims are most likely to be associated with terrorism in the media anytime like Boris Johnson makes a dodgy comment my inbox is flooded asking for a response asking for a statement and the whole point of our work is to be able to exist on our own terms. So we've got over 300 contributors who write about everything from relationships to 
politics to recipes to world news and just things to do on a Friday night. Um, and for us, going into the agency side of things was understanding that our work in itself is not going to touch every single Muslim person out there, but working with huge brands who are also um, creating moments, creating experiences, shaping culture and influencing those moments and how they're created um, will then touch other people as well. Um, and I think it's really important what you were talking about in terms of the stories we tell ourselves because the media is so huge as a tool of how we understand ourselves and also how we understand each other. Um, and so we're carving out a space for Muslims to be able to speak on their own terms, think on their own terms, because a lot of the times we are reacting to what is said about us as communities. Um, and I really feel that's sort of intellectually stunted us as communities because we're not able to think on our own terms. We're always reacting to something. And yeah, that's us in a nutshell. Great, thank you. I think in, in both of the conversations that we had leading up, there was a bit of a sense of like when worlds collide, right? The, you, you guys are very much sitting at the nexus or the communication point between the traditional corporate world, um, which can be characterized as quite culturally white, middle-class male in the way that it, you know, is codified and your communities, which have different um, different, you know, as you say, different ways of being or different um, uh, different terms of, of, of being. And um, like, what happened, like, what, how, what do you experience at that translation point? Like, what happens when this corporate world tries to go into your world or what happens when you try to go into it? And what, um, what are you trying to, like, what do you feel your role is in that collision or that translation point in, 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 in those experiences that you have? So, so for me, when I first went, well, my first job, um, if I'm honest, I didn't really expect the whole traditional, institutional white male. I didn't have that expectation because I didn't know that that was the expectation. Um, and then when I went into that space and I sort of exist quite loudly, I dress different, my accent, I use colloquial slang, like all of that. And I think it's more so about like, more about the acceptance, because I feel like, obviously like we all know that microaggressions exist in the workspace, passive aggressive, all of that, those kind of things that people talk about it all the time. And there's stereotypes kind of like going back to what you said about like the whole media thing. And then I would like, and then I'd get like, so I have braids down, but I also, before I moved, I had really short hair and I used to always wrap my hair, like just with like head wraps and that stuff. And then, I remember someone coming up to me and saying, you know, you can't wear your head wrap yet. And I was just like, what? I was like, why not? I was so confused. And I was like, why not? Like, what's got, like, what's, what's, what? Just like, yeah, it's just not a thing. Like, you know, like, you just don't want to, you know. And I, I didn't, I was like, no, I don't know. I was like, I don't. But I, and I still want my head wrap. And, and I, I'll never forget being in the toilet. And I thought, 30 seconds, I kid you not, someone was staring at me. And it's those small things that happen in the space. You think, oh my gosh, okay, like I get what people are talking about when it comes to traditional ways of being and when people who don't necessarily look like you or they look a different way, they have um, an idea of what you think you should be. And then 
you kind of you, you have two choices I think. You can either conform and choose to then dress how they dress, speak how they speak, and and sort of assimilate or stereotype then I'm just going to be like everybody else I suppose or feed into the stereotype so for me it was more about like um challenging that and every time someone told me oh you know I don't think you should do it so don't think you should I've always asked the question but why like and they would actually really never have the answer to be honest they would never really give me a, a, an actual intellectual educated answer as to why I shouldn't be the way I am and because of that I continue to be me and it only allowed me to elevate more so I feel like again those traditional spaces they exist but I personally don't think that they exist for too long because so many people have so many things to say and it is about it is about diversity yes and diversity of image but it's also about diversity of thought but I always think that if you don't allow people to exist loudly in their image then they won't be confident enough to say what they're thinking in their head because they'll feel like oh, I'm not even comfortable with how I look, so never mind what's going on in here. Do you know what I mean? And um, and that's kind of how I see. It. So like those traditional spaces for me, they, I mean, yeah, they do exist. And I do have friends that still work in like corporate world, like finance and things like that, where it's probably even worse for them because creative industries like is is still quite laid back and there's a culture where there's like quite a social vibe. But I do know for some people they are obviously experiencing different things. But for me. I don't really like to conform to that or the idea of being what somebody thinks I should be. I think that in order for me to be the best, my best self, I have to exist how I am, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I think I hugely agree in terms of that they will lose relevancy because also not able to retain who's coming up in the new generation, generations. And even myself having run Amalia for four years now, I feel like I couldn't exist in those structures anymore because I just, it, and it's also a sense of like, I also don't want to, I also, and I think we're seeing that a lot more, especially in the spaces that we're in, of like a lot of minorities just like very unapologetically rejecting those norms and rejecting those structures and institutions. <coughs> but at the same time, I think what's also interesting is 
um, the power play because in those middle class work spaces, male spaces, there is a lot of power, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of resources. And so even if you think about sort of the, the work that we do as an agency, a lot of our money, a lot of the resources is still coming from those spaces. And so it's still an interesting power dynamic. And I think for, for me, I've always existed on the fringe of industries because I've, I've never, I wasn't from the media industry. I wasn't from the agency world or anything like that. Um, and I think the challenge is to make sure that you're not putting forward palatable versions of yourself and the versions that you feel like people will then be like, yeah, we'd love to work with you. Because that was never the reason, it's that whole means to an end. And I think if you're not clear on your values and who you are as a person and how you want to exist, it's very easy to lose yourself in, in trying to attain the networks and the resources and the partnerships and the deals and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. So I think, Part of what I heard is um, there is a you know there's a problem um, of uh, these brands not being able to necessarily access um, uh, communities other than their you know really understand and access and that um, you know your ability to operate um, on the fringe is a is a solution that you're able to um, to sort of uh, participate in that power dynamic, participate in that financial dynamic to a certain extent in order to survive and make a living, but also stay outside of it to a certain extent so that you don't feel like you are having to compromise um, your own identity or your own needs um, in the process. And it sounds like a pretty ideal win-win um, <laughs> on paper, um, but I'm wondering if what problems does the solution create? What tensions are you navigating? Where do you feel really uneasy in the work that you're doing? Or where do you think, uh, okay, maybe this isn't as straightforward as um, as it would be nice to, 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 to say, um, kind of on a, on a marketing brochure or on a website? Um, you know, where, where do you, what, do you, what worries you about, about this interaction or what you're trying to do? I think one of the things is, um, so we do a lot of talks in agencies and brands and things like that. Um, and what tends to happen is we might be talking about our story, we might be talking about inclusion, we might be talking about um, a specific vertical of food or finance or wellbeing or whatever it is. And what tends to happen is no matter who is in the audience, so we might go to a, a company and they've got someone from HR, someone from product development, someone from marketing, someone from legal, someone from accounts. And what tends to happen is even if I'm there to talk about a really niche thing, and it might be about how to engage with our audience on the topic of wellbeing or finance, right? What tends to happen is that you then are seen as a spokesman for every single thing from how HR should deal with Eid and Ramadan to the latest product that they're developing and what that product development should look like to the marketing campaign in the Middle East and in other parts of, of the world. And I think it's very easy to feel compelled to have those answers, um, but, all, but you need to recognise that like your, you existing as the identity that you do isn't a qualifier in itself, but often it is seen as from, from the outside because I still feel like the diversity and inclusion space is such an emerging space 
and there's not really rules of engagement there, there's not really a handbook there, there's a whole conversation about who gets to be a cultural consultant as well. It's very easy to start performing a role that you're, you shouldn't be doing and also like not understanding your own biases and I see this a lot in the Muslim space where the experience of black Muslims are totally raised because in the UK especially Asian Muslims make up a, a large um, population of Muslims and so for example if you walk into Sainsbury's and you go to the halal section it's labeled as Asian right halal and Asian are not the same thing but it's this idea that Muslims are sort of synonymous with South Asian identity which erases black Muslims from the conversation and so I think the the tension that I sometimes feel is not getting lost in feeling like you have to have the answers for a collective community which is actually really nuanced, really diverse, loads of you know different intersections and things like that. Um, and to give an example, if you think about the recent um, knife box, chicken box campaign um, that the Home Office rolled out, and if you're not aware of it, um, their solution to knife crime after cutting funding for lots of different initiatives, youth clubs and things that were you know people on the ground were actually working on was to have like hashtag knife free or something like that hashtag knife free on chicken boxes in chicken shops and you can read all the think pieces out there of why that's problematic but the key thing there was that the first reaction people said is this is what happens when you don't consult um the people that need to be consulted on this and it turned out that they'd actually consulted an independent agency who said that this is what they do and that's where we need to have a conversation about what gave them the right to be a cultural consultant because your identity is not a qualifier and your identity is not also a spokesman for a collective identity and that is an example of where even cultural consultation or like talking to people on the ground still can go very very wrong and it, it might have been a number of things that might have been that they felt like you know I think monoculture is the thing like even if you bring diverse perspectives into a room it still can be drowned out by this idea of there is still a monoculture or this idea that you can't speak out because of certain codes in that room and the way that that, that room operates right um, and you can just get lost very easily so I think that for me has been a tension point of check of like really checking that if someone is asking me for something um, is it is it my space to be speaking on it even though they 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 100 percent think I'm, I'm like the expert on it i i think that that's a really uh, I, I i like that breakdown of, of how you're talking about identity is not necessarily a qualifier or a point of legitimacy um as perhaps something that we all need to be thinking about across the board in a lot of different contexts and a lot of different angles. Um, so I think, yeah, that's a, I think that's a really useful thought for, for, for you. Um, for me, I feel like, so it's interesting because I feel like when I, so our team's really small, there's like seven of us. And to be honest, Dan, he's the minority and he's a white guy, which is strange. But, but it's not that. For me, it's like, because of the sort of everything that, I'm going to go back to your sort of media representation thing, and like, the whole, I, I really believe in that whole idea of social conditioning and how people perceive people to be. I sort of walk with this consciousness of, okay, I need to make sure that I'm not 
um, feeling the stereotype of X or I'm not that person or um, I need to make sure when I go in there and I give a firm handshake. Like it's, it's little stuff like that where I feel like that and that for me is because kind of going back to what you said about again representing everybody it's like that one person so that lets you down <laughs> that one person that lets you down in front is like oh yeah i knew it like of course like that makes sense and it's just like well no because even though like of, of course you would be to communities and obviously there's subcultures but then i am still just me and maybe maybe i'm it's like when people assume like i I, have, I used to i used to have really difficult conversations sometimes um, when I was at my agency, because they just used to assume stuff like, oh, you must love rap. <laughs> well, yeah, I do. But, 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 why, but why do you assume that straight away? Or like, or like if I was reading a magazine, it's like, oh, why don't you ever read Cosmopolitan? And it's just like, well, because everyone else is reading that and we need to have different things. That we, and, it's, and, I, and then like, I, I, I kid you not, right? I kid you not. I remember having a conversation and someone told me they didn't know that middle-class black people exist and i was like wow i don't know where i am right now because this is crazy and it's those kind of conversations that have me on edge because i'm like i don't know if i'm supposed to defend a middle-class black person right now because i'm not middle class but i definitely know that they exist and it's just like the fact that you are so confident to say that to me and brazen and there were, there, were, there were other conversations, people have conversations about Germans, Russians, all of this, and I even felt uncomfortable, I'm not even those, those people, but because I know that we don't exist in just that one form of identity, it was uncomfortable for me, and I didn't always know how to address that conversation because these people were so privileged to have that conversation so openly and feel like, yeah, of course, like, isn't it just Beyonce and then like the working class? <laughs> I was like, you're joking, yeah? Like, do that every but, but again, like, I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to address that ignorance. Like, do you know what I mean? And for me, I feel like there, and there are obviously some chat like business challenges sometimes. Like, obviously, like we've we've had like you know I don't necessarily work on um, the creative the creative side of stuff in the company. But I do like I, I do like listening to the briefings and stuff. And we have had in the past some some like who work on global work. But like, no, I think we should take this person out because they actually don't appeal to our audience back home. Um, and that might be I don't know it could be Russia, Australia, whatever. And I'm like, well, you said that you wanted a campaign that represents different types of people. But if you take out this now two three people, then that's not what you asked for. So <laughs> don't quite know what you want here. Like, can you explain what you're trying to do or what you're trying to say? And again, it, it goes back to like it's the little things where I feel like I feel like it's a constant walk. Like I I remember having a conversation with my friend and um she used to work at another agency and she's also a young black female. She's like, Do you ever think of like I what music you're playing? Like, do you ever think like Maybe I should have played that. And I'm like, yeah, do you too? And it's like, she would have a conversation with her other colleague and who wasn't a black female. And they're like, yeah, no, why would you ever think about that? And it's, it's like that chip on your shoulder that it's like those are the little things that you wouldn't even think that people are having to think about because of the perception that the world has put out there. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like it's that trying to make that transition into making sure that if you are in those spaces, Obviously, yes, you exist loudly, like I said, and always represent who you are, but then you have to make sure that you don't feed into a stereotype that everyone else has told you that you should be. 
I think that's a really good, and we're going to have to kind of wrap up um, the next few minutes, but I think that's a really good transition into talking about what might be changing with Generation Color Tree in these conversations, because I think one of the things that we see very clearly in our research is that if in the past your identity was more given to, you know, put upon you, as you say, by these assumptions of how other people perceive you and label you, that this generation <clears throat> says basically, we're not, we see through that game, we don't, we don't believe in your categorization system, and I am who I say I am, and I, I, you know, my, I, I identify as, and I define that, and, and I hear echoes of that in, in what, you, what you're talking about in terms of, of just wanting to be, your, you know, yourself and not represent, you know, representative, you know, of, of in, you know, entire groups, and I think, um, I guess my question is, what do you, you know, and you also you work with a lot of young talent, a lot of young voices who aren't necessarily here tonight, sort of, <clears throat> what do you, what do you think Generation Poetry would say to this room? Um, you know, what do the younger people that you would say to this room in terms of, of um, their right to talk to them, to basically say things to them to try and persuade them or or even you know communicate with them like do, do you know do we have a right to communicate with this generation or do they even want to talk to us from your perspective um. so I just think well I think nothing can nothing can really truly move forward without collaboration and I think we need the understanding and the knowledge and the wisdom of the people that existed before us of all different spaces and places in order to move forward. But I feel like young, the generation poetry, as you'd say, they would say, are you listening? Before I speak, are you going to listen to me? Because what happens is a lot of young people, oh, I'd love you to come and talk about this. I'd love you to come and sit out and put your thoughts about this. But then once they leave the room, it's like, well, I didn't say that. And did you, did, were you understanding what I'm, like, are you going to listen to me? If you're not going to listen to me, then I don't want to talk about it. And what happens is, is that it, it's a constant conversation and then you see no action after that. So then you see stuff like the knife crime happening. And then it's like, and like, I, so I teach dance also in primary schools and I'm also a dance tutor at Young Theatre School in Peckham. And I have two rules in my class. And that's when I'm talking, you listen, and when you talk, I'll listen. And they've never heard that before because they've only been spoken at. And when they're like, oh, okay, Shan's gonna listen. They, they, they wanna come and tell me stuff. And they're like, they wanna they want give their ideas and it, and it makes a better performance. And then I get better um, activity out of them and enthusiasm out of them. And I think that that's what the younger generation want. They wanna be able to um, create exist or be listened to and don't just take from them because it's it's not an opportunity to just pick their brain it's an opportunity to understand how can we work better together to make the world a better place do you know what i mean and i feel like there's so many things that are happening right now and and that, that's underground that's like i'm talking if i go back home um i've got a younger nephew who's autistic and he feels like he's absolutely ignored in the world because no one listens to him and they just put this label on him because he's autistic and they don't see anything else but that. But then when I talk to him, it's like, see why, like, you're listening? Like, do you know what I mean? And he even gets that sometimes from, like, 
you know, like my like my my mom who's his grandma, I'm like, Mom, you need to listen to what he's saying because he's telling you that's not how he's he's telling you that's how he's feeling, but that's not how he's gonna feel for the rest of the day. Like, do you know what I mean? Like just listen to just let him talk and I feel like sometimes that's what it's about. It's just about having that understanding and finding that middle ground of okay, so how can we help each other and um what are the actions that we need to now move forward in in order to help the young talent or the things that need the solutions, that problems that need solutions. So I think if, if I had to sum that up and like just to be like, mm. yes, you can talk to us, but you have to listen first. Yeah. Um, I think for me, something that we've been working on a lot recently and a lot of the conversations we've had with brands in particular is around demographic data and how demographic data is shifting. Um, and I think going off this idea that it's harder to put people in boxes in the generations that are coming um, and advertising has built itself putting people in boxes like there's a really clear idea of who a black woman is there's a really clear idea of who the Muslim woman is and she's normally in a hijab and she looks uber cool like she just stepped off a plane in the Middle East or something like that there's really clear ideas of what all these groups look like which isn't as clear um, growing now with new generations and new intersections and new identities that they're also forming online, offline, so there's like the dual identity there as well. Um, and I think what the generation would say is um, we are not a minority and we're the global majority and you can't ignore us and I think there's a real sense of like you can't ignore us because we're going to exist in our own power structures as well. And so you, if you choose to ignore us, that you're going to become irrelevant, as you were saying. Um, so I think there's a real sense of like, I don't even need to engage with you. And actually, you need to engage on my terms and you need to be able to speak my language and know that if you don't, um, you're, you're going to become irrelevant very quickly. Great. Well, I think that's a perfect place to wrap up um, the session. Thank you both very much. And I think um, we'll, we'll, take some, we'll take questions at the end of the panel so that we can kind of reflect across a little bit. Um, my name is Amy. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Good Loop. We are um, just, well, almost exactly three years old. It's our third anniversary in like a week, actually. Um, and um, I started the business um, coming from an advertising background. So I worked at Ogilvy um, on the graduate scheme. Very similar, like moving around all the different programs. And uh, I, I loved working in, in advertising. I met really interesting people and uh, I, I loved that kind of combination of creativity and, and business acumen. I think that's a really exciting space to be in. Um, but I was uh, working on the Unilever account, that was my client, and, and Unilever had just done that big study that showed their sustainable brands or their social brands grew 50% faster than their non-social brands. And, you know, it, it was like an earworm, like I, it got in my brain and I just, the idea that Unilever makes more money by doing good in the world is so powerful because then you make 
purpose and social good scalable. And we did some like <clears throat> fag packet maths on how much water we were going to save with this uh, fabric conditioner product where you do one less rinse. And it was honestly more water than like 10 lifetimes, and just, just because it was in 50 markets across, you know, multiple um, different demographics and groups. And, 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 and that was like, I've got to do this. I've got to stop doing all the other crap I'm doing, client emails and all the other bits of advertising that are, that are less fun. And I've got to dedicate to making purpose scalable. So um, two years later, I started my company, which uh, was founded on that principle. <clears throat> Let's use ethics and purpose to, to, to drive sales, to drive ROI. So we are a platform. We distribute ad content onto websites and social channels. And when people choose to engage with that content, they unlock a donation funded by the brand. So it's, it's that exact same philosophy. The brand gets better results and we actually fund good. So. Um, that's why we called it the good loop. And what what interested you in the topic tonight? Why why did well? I guess that's exactly like the, the kind of foundational point of the business was um, harnessing this exciting shift towards purpose in our industry and and and, and the ga galvanizing that that trend into something tangible in, into a product that I can sell at scale globally. So. I guess I am very much operating in the space of helping brands solve the problems they create or, and and some they don't create. And and so I guess I'm 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 embracing the grey area of that and trying to sort of chew it over. I'm Rebecca. <laughs> uh, so I'm Rebecca, I'm the UK activism manager for Ben and Jerry's. What is that? Great question, I'll tell you. Um, ben and Jerry's has got a long and proud history of campaigning on issues that we really care about, uh, that come from the values that our founders, Ben and Jerry, they are real people, um, they're still alive, in fact. Um, lots of people are surprised when I tell them that. Uh, that they stood in the company from the very beginning. So we try and drive systemic change. So we bring our fans into movements, we leverage their people power, and we drive systemic change. And um, my background is in activism and campaigning, but from an NGO world, um, working with various NGOs on climate change, on tax justice, on refugee rights, and all sorts of exciting things. Um, and what brought me to Ben & Jerry's was this idea that actually the private sector has a role to play in driving social change. Like the, the traditional models are about the charity world, working with governments, maybe you get some small social enterprises here there to solve some smaller problems, or problems on a smaller scale, sorry. Um, but actually the private sector's got a huge voice and a huge um, influence. And so to be able to leverage that and tilt that towards environmental and social good um, was really exciting. Um, plus I get to eat all the ice cream that I want, so that's also cool. So what stood out in our pre-conversations was this idea that um, brands don't just have a responsibility to solve the, the problems they create directly. So to reduce their environmental impact or to dairy uh, farm more sustainably or whatever, but also to use their scale and their platform for good beyond their direct product or service. And I, you know, that seemed to open up a lot of interesting questions of sort of like, what issues beyond their own business do brands have credibility to participate in? And I was wondering on your own thoughts of like, so if, if, a, if a brand is like looking at the world and going, okay, what can we change in the world? Um, what, where do you feel they should engage or they have credibility or legitimacy to 
um, kind of, I guess, swim outside their own lane. Um, well, I mean, there's a there's a study that's done every year um, by um, a company called Cone, and they look at purpose and perceptions of purpose amongst the public. Uh, and they, there's a really interesting little snippet of that study, which is around people's expectations of brands. And in 20, 2015, the answer to the question was, I think it was like 75% of people believe that companies should operate responsibly. And then that same question in 2018, the phrasing changed and it was people believe that they they have a responsibility to, to do good in the world. So that shift from expectation around operation and direct fill of influence and packaging and supply chain and, and diversity of workforce and the things that a brand directly can control to a much broader scope of how can brands make the world a better place, that, that, that has coincided with a bigger awareness around conscious consumerism and, and how buying and spending my pounds can change the world I live in. So I think that that's, that's a shift that has, has broadened out the platform of what brands can do um, and created more opportunity, but also more responsibility. Um, and, and there are some really lovely examples. Like that we, we see a lot working with, with brands. I, I love the idea of, this is another Unilever example, but they were my client for a while, so I, it's one I know well. Um, the P&G tea brand, there's, there's the sort of 2015 response of directly responsible sourcing of, of tea leaves and fair trade and, and packaging and making all the pack packaging recyclable. And then there's the sort of 2019 responsibility of like tea is what you do with a lonely old person to make them feel human. And so they have this amazing social platform around loneliness and old people and just going and having a cup of tea with someone that needs help. And that is so relevant and it's, it's not grand and it's not gonna change the world and it's not gonna fix the climate crisis, but it's, 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 it's powerful within the sphere of influence that they have, I think, a, 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 a voice in. So I think that's kind of a nice example. I think, uh, yeah, I think that's really interesting, that thing about the sphere of influence. And we've had conversations before about impact and what, what impact you as an organisation, whatever organisation you are, of what impact you can you can have. And for people that engage in marketing and advertising, you are talking to a lot of people all of the time. So if you can, again, tilt some of that towards talking to them about, you know what, refugees should have the same rights as the rest of us. Or you know what, um, racial justice is an issue, let's talk about it. And um, then I think that's really important. For Bill and Jerry specifically, we're kind of, we're in a slightly easier position in that we started with these values. And so they've been part and parcel of the business, that the internal operations and how we talk externally <coughs> since day one. Um, and people know us for it, and it means that it's, it's uh, slightly easier for us to say, launch a campaign on on refugee rights, which is what we do in the UK, then maybe it would be for, for PG Tips to do. But if again, if you if you look at the impact that you can have, and you think to yourself really honestly about where you can tilt that towards social good, um, or environmental good, or whatever it is, then then that's that's a really good really good starting place. I think the other thing, like people get quite uh, trip themselves up over credibility, or some of the brands that I've seen have these conversations trip themselves up over credibility, and I think it's better to do something than nothing, and also if you're really honest about where you are and what you're doing, then I think that gives you more credibility to broaden your sphere of influence, play in spaces um, outside of your immediate operations, because someone will look at you and say, okay, well, you know, we're a dairy company, right, so we have responsibility when it comes to climate justice. 
Uh, but we still campaign on it, and we campaign for policies related to climate justice. And I think um, for us it's really important to be transparent about the fact that we're a dairy company. I mean, everyone kind of knows that, but uh, we've got work to do, and we are doing work on it. But at the same time, um, there's other stuff that needs to be changed in this in this space. So I think sometimes credibility can be almost an excuse for inaction, and actually it's really important to be honest about where you are, think about your sphere of influence, and, and take some action, because we have a responsibility, um, you know, no matter what our size, no matter who we are, we have a responsibility to use our voice in the best possible way. So, the... The question that that brings to mind a little bit to me is, because we're talking a lot about your the brand's advertising voices, so how how they use the scale and the power of their communication to, I guess, um, attach other messages onto that. And um, we see in Generation Poetry a real um, eagle-eyed awareness of what the game is with branding and advertising a sense of yeah we we know that we know that you're telling we know that you're telling us stories we know that you're trying to convince us of something um you know we know that the the end goal in this is somehow a bit you know persuasive or even manipulative and um so i wonder how how do you do you think there's a tension between attaching a kind of a message for good with a manipulative message does one cancel out the other, or do they um, discredit each other, or is is that actually a you know a reasonable uh, kind of marriage? Um. Um, I think I think that you have to start with impact. I think you have to always say what is the impact that we are going for, and how do we bring people into the movement that's going to create that impact. Um, and it's not about saying, buy some ice cream, and also, refugees are okay. It's about saying, you know what, we have got a platform, so we're going to use it to tell people, you know what, refugees are kind of having a rough time right now. We can do something about it all together. You, as, as, as a consumer, as a citizen, you can do something about it. Um, and so I don't think... I think it's a dangerous space to get into when you think about offsetting one message with the other. And we're doing good over here, so we can be evil over here. Like, that's not how social change happens. And I think, to your point before, people see through that. People know that that's what you're doing. Um, so it's about um, bringing your whole operation into an alignment, into alignment with the impact that you are trying to have. And then being... Um, yeah, being honest and real in your communications about that and not shying away from, from the difficulties, I think. And, and like, exactly to your point, it, it is about impact of how the citizen can make an impact. And that, like, it's almost in, the, in that world you're describing where brands are put less on a pedestal and, and, and considered as the fictional things they are, then all they really... The, the only role they really play is a facilitator of how I can do good. And, and, and regardless of age and generation, surely we're all ultimately busy and, you know, cash-strapped and, and time poor and, and trying to make ourselves as proud of our impact in the world as we can within the constraints that we're living in, within the, the capitalist world that we live in. So how can 
brands play a role in, in facilitating me to feel better about the way I'm consuming and the impact I'm having. And, and so I think it, it is a shift from like brands standing up and saying, oh, I'm really good, I, you know, Coca-Cola did X, to how can Coca-Cola facilitate their consumers and their citizens to, to make the world better. I think that's probably the, the, the definition. Um, but it's a really it's a really tricky space because there are so many examples of that like woke washing and green washing that are just complete bullshit and you know it and you see through it regardless of your age. And and I guess when I'm thinking about what brands we want to work on at Good Loop, because at Good Loop is essentially a platform that would be really easy to be manipulated for that and to say, look, here's, we're doing some really good stuff over here, but don't look at all the all the all the stuff in the cupboard. So what what I try to think about is almost like a um, what's it called, a dartboard. So if the centre of the dartboard, the bullseye, is brands like Ben & Jerry's who have social good and justice and change and activism and, and, and impact at the heart of, of who they are and why you'd buy them, that their USP, their competitive advantage, is social good, right? Like Tom's, uh, Method, uh, Patagonia. And then the second ring around that is brands who weren't originally conceived to do good, they're the more mainstream brands, but they have found their little piece of the world that they can they can make a meaningful change in, in, in a very, very relevant way. And then the, the layer over that is the, you know, Shell funding the National Theatre, where it, it's completely not linked and actually is, is, a, is a plaster over a gaping wound. So um, that, that, that sort of bullseye <coughs> approach, I think, is how we want to look at it. And you want to just get as near the centre of that as you can in the brands you're engaging with and the brands you're buying. And I think just, just to add to that, I think part of the problem in the moment is that a lot of a lot of people are on this um, line where, okay, business as usual is here and we're gonna do some good so it's gonna take us up to here. So we're gonna put a sticking plaster on this whole great big wound, but it's better than we were doing before, so well done us. Rather than taking like a step back, a structural approach, okay, what impact am I having? Okay, we're, a, we're an oil company, so we are, well, they're a bad example because they're just screwing me up. But um, we are having an impact through our messaging. We're having an impact through our operations. We're having an impact. I mean, this goes for individuals as well as companies, right? We have a carbon footprint. We all have a massive carbon footprint. Just because you cycle one day to work, it doesn't negate your carbon footprint. It brings it down a little bit, but it doesn't negate it. And so I think the realization has to come that we are all going to have kind of a terrible impact. And really, all we're doing at the moment is making it a bit less terrible and being honest about where we are will help us go further and help us create genuine positive environmental and social impact so um I, and and um now i'm going to be a bit unfair because i'm going to ask you guys to be representative of an entire classes of identity that, that you aren't necessarily experts on because um you know i think i have a question more more specifically around i suppose the products that brands create um, and the problems those products directly create. So less about kind of environmental impact, but more about um, the problems we create when we um, tell people they smell, so they need deodorant, or that they um, are anxious and so they need to be more confident and more beautiful. So where we you know, start to break down people's body image, their mental image, when we convince them to buy things they don't need. Um, or even convince them to buy products that are harmful, which one could argue that ice cream is actually shortening our lifespan, you know, in the midst of an obesity epidemic. And so I guess 
I'm wondering uh, what your feelings are about in the future, over the next 10, 20 years, what products will the world allow to exist? What, um, you know, and, you know, brands, you know, and I'm kind of conflating brand and product there, should still be here. Should, you know, and, and, and their, their products are, are, are actually, um, yeah, have credible rights to, you know, rather than being inventing a need, um, which we're then um, fulfilling through our, our purchasing. I mean, I'm super tall on this. It's a really difficult question. <laughs> so thanks. Um, I, I was thinking about <laughs> when you were speaking. I was thinking about like Raja, like the trainers. So the, they're very ethical trainers. Every hipster in Hackney has got a V on their trainers now, and it's um, rubber from the Amazon, and it's sewn by hand by communities that need this amazing support, like every single element of their product is, is really incredible. It's a very, very impressive company. But I wanted to buy some and they were like 120 quid and they're so expensive. And and so I ended up going to H&M and buying 20 quid trainers. And I really regret that, honestly. But the point I'm trying to make is that it, there's like a, there's a, a layer of privilege as well that goes on top of that, like ethical products. Um, and so, it's a little unrealistic to expect everyone to just turn off needing, you know, the Unilever deodorant when there's like the mud one that you can get in like the packaging from Lush and whatever. But it's it's ten times the price. So I guess that's where I'm a bit torn. I don't really have an answer, but I think it's just another layer to the debate. It's like, how can we push everyone forwards in a, in a mainstream, inclusive way, uh, rather than just saying this is bad and this is good and. and being a bit too black and white about it. Yeah, <laughs> again, activist, not marketer, so I'm gonna try and limit what I'm gonna say about this. But um, from, like, from a Ben & Jerry's perspective, like, no one needs Ben & Jerry's. Like, if you're eating Ben & Jerry's every day, there's probably some other questions that I'm gonna ask you. It's clearly like something just fun. And I think that that makes it, to be honest, it makes my job slightly easier because it means that we're starting from a proposition of, hey, we're having some fun over here. And you can help change the world with us. Um, not even by eating the ice cream, just by, you know, whatever, following us on social media or anything. Um, I think it, I think you can't wait until you're perfect before you take action. And I think that we all have a responsibility to just do better. Um, and so what I hope is that in the future, more people realise that money is power, and where you put your money is power, and it, um, it's part of your role as a citizen to spend responsibly. And hopefully what that will do is encourage people who are making things, people who are selling things, people who are designing things, to just move a little bit further forward. Again, like, you know, no one's, no one's gonna be perfect straight away. You just have to take steps and keep, stay, keep taking steps and keep going forwards. And eat Ben and Jerry's, because it's awesome. <laughs> Okay, I think with that we are, um, I think we've used up our, our time and maybe a little bit more, but I wanted to, are there, are there questions um, in the audience for any of our panelists or, um, yeah? Yeah, I'd, I'd just like to ask everybody, you know, a few brands name check this out, but just on that big global brand who thinks I'll get it right, especially your earlier comments about really, truly listening, and responding to that. Are there, are there sort of, are there, are there sort of niche brands, but are there big global companies who are getting it right? Um, can you, can you
we've got that recognition that there's some bits of the world that are terrible and there are bits of the world that go against our values, so we're doing something about it. Victoria, sorry, just to interrupt you. You know, where literally, why don't you just fix the sugar? Fix the sugar. <laughs> I mean, again, why don't we just fix the sugar? <laughs> I can say so many things about the way that obesity is talked about, the way that science is presented. Sorry, I didn't. Sorry. I can say so much about the way that correlation and causation have been conflated when it comes to obesity, um, and the way that structural causes are just not even talked about when it comes to obesity. I think with Ben and Jerry specifically, the sugar in it is not hidden. Like it's there. Like it's ice cream. You know what you're eating. And like I said before, if you're eating pints of Ben and Jerry's a day, I have some concerns about you. Um, you know, we, we've, we've got all of our, we, we're big on consumer choice, right? So, and, and intelligent choice. So the labeling is there. In the States, for a while, the labeling was not so good as, as, as a country. And we really campaigned hard to make the labeling clearer and more upfront because we wanted to give people that choice. Um, you know, we've got, now we've got our great vegan range, which I and a whole lot of other people are really excited about. We've got our lower sugar, lower fat range. Fine, if you want to make that choice. Um, but I think to say, you're high in sugar, so you can't talk about climate change. To me, sorry, as an activist, it's like saying to Greta Thunberg, you're 16, so you can't talk about climate change. Obviously, I'm not saying Ben and Jerry's is equivalent to Greta Thunberg. It's not that they don't think of the legitimacy. It's actually, they, I think, I'm not representing them, but in my conversation, there is a strong sense of, you are not listening, you are manipulating us. That, that's what I'm saying, yeah. and I'm, I'm actually not pretending to improve here. It's just that we have this, had this type of conversation in many markets with the young people, and actually, as a person that helps them, they thought, oh shit, I mean, I think we are what we are. Like, we're, we're, we're a dairy, tasty ice cream company, and you know, we're doing the best we can in the ways that we can. And I think. It's not a distraction because we're not hiding it, maybe is what I'd come back to again. Like, it's not hidden, it's right there. You know, it's on the label. We're clearly an indulgent treat. Yeah, I think if you, if you don't know that ice cream's got sugar in it, then, then who are you? <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. I think you're missing an important aspect that Ben & Jerry's is a benefit corporation. So by choice, so you committed to social and environmental good. Your governance structure is committed to that. Your legal obligations are committed to that. So come up here, tell us about <laughs> it. And that's essentially your board. So Unilever also is considering the company B Corp. And if Unilever becomes yeah. B Corp, then game over, you've won. Because that is, because the, and the other thing about B Corp is your governance structure and your actions have to be absolutely transparent. Nothing is hidden. So Ben and Jerry's are putting the money where the mouth is. Literally, they're saying, you haven't got sugar in there, and we're quite open about it. We're not going to hide it. Mm. And, you know, I, a few years ago, I just decided I can't work for anyone except B Corps, because this one, why, why waste your time on companies that haven't made that sort of commitment? And yeah. um, it's that centre of the ball, and that's, I think, business. So where will businesses go in the future? I believe the social enterprise of the future will mm. gravitate towards the B Corp model, yeah. because it yeah. allows people, especially young people, to explore to develop a business, it's a good business based on doing good, what they think. When I talk to Virgin Startup in Bournemouth, where I come from, these people are not thought about doing good business, but they say to me, why on earth would I want to create a company that destroys the planet or wrecks mm, people's yeah, health? Yeah, yeah. You know, they're business people, but 
they bring that innate sense of doing good yeah. with them. It's yeah. not being stuck on at the end. It's not a, 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 yeah. you know, a nice marketing trick. And that's the authenticity. So one lie blows everything. And just, just to add to that, the Peacock model, one of the things that I think is fantastic about it is that it's a roadmap. It's not that you get your label and then you're like, right, done, well, I'm a good company so I can rest easy on my laurels. It's no, you, you, you're you making progress year on year. You're going to get better, you're going to get better, and, and you have to in order to keep that. And it's um, collaborative. And it's collaborative, yeah. Exactly. yeah. We actually just, so Loop has just been certified as B Corp and it took us months and it's a really hard process. I'm incredibly proud to say we are B Corp after lots of work. And it is, they go so deep on your governance structure. How do you empower your employees? How do you train people? How do you look at your supply chain? Like we had to give them all our contracts with all our suppliers to show that they were all like um, like um, fair trade and paying a living wage. And it's really, really in depth. And you can go onto B Corp and you can see our report, Good Loops report, and you can see yours. And, and that, like, I, I completely agree that it's a lovely point. And it is, when you're thinking about conscious consumerism and the empowerment that we have when we spend a pound, it's facilitated by information. When we can see and differentiate good companies from bad ones in an easy way, like the B Corp model or Fairtrade, all those other stamps and kite marks, it helps us make those decisions integrated within our daily busy lives. Okay, I think we can take one more question. Hey, thank you. Um, so I really liked your Unilever tea example. Um, and I really like the, the bullseye dartboard example, um, where you had example of companies that were doing things good just, you know, for the public were getting more and there, versus a company that had really thought about the spirit of their influence and saying, actually, tea brings people together, right? Um, I, I kind of look at, my personal view on this, and I'm not an expert at all, is that loads and loads of large corporations are really trying to value the intangibles for their business because a lot of accounting uh, research into the value of the share price of large organizations over the last 20, 30 years has shown that the intangibles actually has up to 80% of um, the actual value of the, the share price change. So, and those companies don't really have, and we don't have an accounting method in the world today, a financial kind of model that helps us to get our heads around those intangibles. Mm. Data, employees, um, the health of people, the, the sphere of influence on social good. All of these things are intangible that we all know that's good, there's a value to it, and I would like to buy it because of that, but actually I don't really know how to measure it. And companies themselves, I think, don't, don't know either. And, you know, trust me, the big four and these accounting um, professional services companies are, are pretty much trying to figure out how to use machine learning analytics to try to create better audits, right, to help companies value this stuff. So, Basically, I, I, I kind of think that the organizations that are doing things that are faster over here or doing things that are you know, related to their field of influence, they're kind of testing, experimenting what different ways they could go about maybe trying to value the impact they have. Um, maybe not consciously, maybe it's kind of like an unconscious way of doing it, but I, I think that at the root of this, there needs to be a decoupling of um, I will be a better company if I sell more. And how can you, like a human being in a way, where I have a day job and I go do something that earns me money, but also I, I have hobbies and things I do with my friends and family that's arguably good, let's say, but it's not tethered to each other, right? I don't, I don't do that because it helps me make more money in my job. In mm -hmm. my job. Yeah. 
where I'd run out to corporations, I think all of it comes down to, no matter how you, you know, kind of put a narrative around it, the board will say, we're doing that because that makes us self, mm -hmm. right? We're doing that because it stops us. It, it helps to stop things getting in the way of us. So, mm -hmm. as Shell would probably say, right, we're doing this to put the naysayers at bay to help us get on with selling more. So, do you think that there can actually be a real a world where organizations actually have positive impact without that decoupling of financial incentives? And is that even possible? I mean, again, just from Ben and Jerry's experience, we have um, what we call a two-part mission, right? So we have a product mission, which is about creating exciting and innovative ice cream. We talk about surprising and delighting fans. We have an economic mission, which is about making sure that everybody who is involved in making Ben and Jerry's benefits, um, we call that linked to prosperity. And then we have the social mission, which is about making sure that our operations and our platform are used for um, social and environmental good. And they are all three of them always displayed um, uh, you know, like this. What's the word I'm looking for? In a line. So basically, not one is prioritised over the other. Um, and the idea is that yes, there will be times when you make a decision that maybe favours the one over the other. But broadly, they should all they should all balance out. Um, I think what's difficult is that although we have the conviction that we do stuff because it's right rather than because uh, we have credibility, it's going to make us money. Not everybody has that from from the off from their starting points and so sometimes it is a sad fact that you have to make the business case okay well if you want to um continue to sell in 20 30 years time you're going to have to start doing some um social impact or environmental impact work because that's what's going to keep you afloat now if you stay in that mindset it, it's all going to go to to hell in a handbasket because you're always going to be coming back to it's that old thing of that you aim at what you measure if you're measuring the financial impact that's what you're ultimately going to aim at even if you're going via social impact um i think we haven't we definitely haven't cracked it at ben and jerry's we have um wait so ben and jerry's is owned by unilever and part of the acquisition agreement when they bought us in the year 2000 was that the social mission indicators have to grow year on year at a rate above the financial indicators now mm. that's quite difficult because you're comparing pounds or dollars or euros or whatever with you know, cheese or whatever. You know, you're you're not comparing like for likes. It's a it's a hard thing to do, um, and you know, like I said, we haven't cracked it, but the intention is there, and I think having that aim, having that goal, is what keeps you kind of honest. Um, but it's quite a hard message to land with companies or with other businesses that, um, you know, what you can just do good for the sake of doing good, and that's also cool. Um, because it feels like maybe that decoupling hasn't happened. But people, yeah, but you're right, it exists in people, and, it, and it's coming back to the idea that businesses are made of people, companies are made of people, and actually if you can appeal to people's humanity, then you might get slightly further with that argument. So does that mean it's kind of like the difference between a person who, who does their job and then chooses their hobbies that can further their professional life versus someone who does a nine to five just to make money to go and do their hobby. So it's kind of like Ben and Jerry's is someone who is an organization that sells ice cream just to make money so you can do social good. I mean, there is that, but there's also the element of, again, taking a step back and looking structurally at our impact. Our impact comes from two places. It comes from our operational um, uh, business, so the nine to five, and it comes from our hobbies, our activism, our social purpose, and our in our platform as somebody that has a voice. So it's not enough to say, well, we make money and then we give it all to charity. Or, I mean, make, no, that's quite good. If <laughs> we make money and we give some of it to charity. 
so it offsets offsets the, 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 the not so great stuff that we're doing over here. That's not that's not really good enough. So what you have to do is be able to take a holistic view of everything you're doing and seeing where the impact is that you're having across your operations and across your platform. Which is more sustainable, actually, right? It's like that creating that self-sustaining um, cycle of good, which is the whole exciting idea of a social enterprise, is that the good is baked into the profit, which means you're not reliant on some rich dude getting out the right side of the bed and donating his his, his fortune to charity, you're creating a wealth that is then invested back into the impact that you want to have. And as you make more money, you do more good. Like I've built a social business where we give half our turnover to charity and, and it would never be a globally scalable business if I went in and said, you're going to feel really warm and fuzzy inside when you do this. Like it's just naive. I have to go into a brand or an agency and I have to say, you're going to sell more stuff. You're going to get higher engagement, better brand uplift, you know, whatever the metrics. And so focusing on the things that make the, the, the wheel of capitalism turn is how you, you do these things at scale. On that, I think we're going to have to wrap up. I think I would, I would probably insert the, voice of, the cautionary voice of, of Generation Poetry there a little bit and sort of saying that um, we have, you know, I think probably one of the assumptions that we might need to check in how we've all been talking tonight is um, about do, like it's better to do like to do to do to do mm -hmm. um, and that um, actually doing all these things is um, uh, is just you know kind of is the end, you kind of I guess the means and the end and I think um, you know possibly some of what we're hearing saying is like just stop doing like mm -hmm. all of this doing has kind of gotten us into this problem in the first place. Mm. And maybe we should just stop, think, reflect, and and maybe not all of this stuff really should be happening. And so I think that, you know, kind of end on, on that is kind of the, the final kind of point of reflection of sort of like, yeah, we're really not, you know, we really assume that doing is the way to solve our problems. And, you know, what we're hearing is maybe a challenge to kind of stop Stop doing is, is a bit of, of an antidote to some of these these crises. Um, now, this is the point in which we're supposed to give you something like to take away and remember this by, and it should like be kind of like a folder or a book or um, something like that. But if you haven't picked up already, kind of the Generation Poetry Project does everything a bit differently. I guess that's like Carla considers us a, a new breed. <laughs> um, we do our research differently and we communicate our research differently. So um, based on our research and our insights and our findings, we have created a scent, a fragrance of generation poetry, which um, one of the reasons we've done this is because smell is the sense that's most tightly entwined with our memory. Um, so, um, but it's also quite ephemeral, right? It doesn't, you can't hold on to it and it's not gonna last forever. So, um, but just because it is ephemeral doesn't mean it has, doesn't have any value. So we have created the sense of generation poetry. There are envelopes for you at the back that you can take one and hopefully, um, yeah, see what sticks. And um, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us tonight and helping us launch. Um, how can people keep up with what you're doing? Well, there's a website, 
www.generationpoetry.com, which is um, uh, where I would suggest that you sign up for our newsletter because uh, we're not because we're a school and because we're trying to get this conversation started. We're sharing everything that we know. So um, if you sign up for the newsletter every week, you get actual analysis, data, and kind of insight from what we're doing. Um, and um, also a podcast that um, there's five episodes out so far, and um, they're going to keep coming. And again, talking to um, both experts as, as, and people that have been on the Generation Poetry kind of project journey with us, but also the voices of Generation Poetry and, um, and that. So I think kind of our, um, our, our podcast or newsletter is the best way in. We also, I will put in a shameless business plug here because we are a self-funded project, right? So we have day jobs, right? We, we, you know, but in order to keep doing the research, in order to um, kind of continue holding these events and making available, making the podcast, the newsletter, we need, you know, we sell our intelligence services. So, you know, we're happy to come in and spend a day, two days, a few days helping you um, understand some of what we're seeing in Generation Poetry, but also there's an op there are opportunities to come out with us and do field work. So if you really are like, oh, shit, there's some, there's the, okay, there's this new language and I need to start learning how to listen to it. We actually give you the opportunity to come out with us and listen to it directly which is um, actually a life-changing experience. So, um, you know, I highly, I highly recommend it um, and just for that. And over selfing, so it must be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, find um, me or Master or Jeff, get in touch with the website, subscribe, and please, anything you can do to help amplify, you know, amplify our, our, our message and build our audience, um, we would very much appreciate.